Welcome to Statewide Reports and Conversations from in and around Illinois. I'm Sean Crawford. This hour, what women need to achieve financial freedom. Illinois' Lieutenant Governor will talk about some efforts to help. We'll also hear about women in the beer industry, supporters of a controversial tax scholarship program in Illinois, which is set to expire, aren't giving up their fight. The state has a new literacy plan. It has new guidance for how to teach kids to read. We'll also visit a community without a library, but where taxpayers are still paying for the service. Renewable energy development is seen as key for the future, but not all towns are excited by wind turbines and solar farms. And many find yoga is a remedy for stress. The same reason is why a homeless shelter is offering classes. We'll learn about those stories and more coming up on Statewide. This is Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. St. Louis is a beer city, and like other industries, it's slowly making strides in placing more diversity in leadership positions. Wayne Pratt spoke with two female head brewers who discussed the challenges facing the industry. Third Wheel Brewing head brewer Abby Spencer likes to show off the operation in St. Peter's. This is where like the magic happens in terms of we're converting starch to sugar, we're creating wort, which will eventually become beer. She has a background in education and is using that experience to teach others about the male-dominated industry and the push for change. Yeah, women can brew. Of course we can brew, just like we can do anything else. Spencer says in the beginning, Third Wheel Ownership was intrigued with hiring a female brewer. Having that as almost a shtick. Little did they know I had no interest in the shtick. I had no interest in discussing my gender. She took a different approach after a friend who was working on Third Wheel's branding made a convincing argument. Not only are you the head brewer and you're outstanding, but you keep hiring other women And the women in the industry look to you, it's really important to them that they can see you and know that there's opportunity there. Serving as a role model for women is a significant step, but Spencer says even more work is needed. Let's figure this out in this male-dominated industry, white, bearded, male-dominated industry. How can we make it a little more diverse and how can we make it more welcoming to everybody else. The Industry Trade Group Brewers Association is monitoring the issue. Its most recent research shows 92% of brewers at member businesses are male and total production staff is 85% male. Association Chief Economist Bart Watson says those numbers are surprising considering the results of a deeper dive into his research. Beer is not exclusively loved by men. You know, women love beer too. And so seeing how uh, much that number is, is male heavy, I think is a little bit surprising, you know, given, again, data we have on total female beer consumption or even female ownership. Spencer is noticing progress but understands significant change is not going to happen overnight. That pace is not lost on Danielle Snowden, who is the head brewer at Earthbound Brewery. I think it's, you know, a slow process, but that's typically how change works. She started in the industry by hanging around the Cherokee Street Brewery until she was eventually brought on as a bartender and then worked her way up. Doing tours, washing kegs, eventually helping out on the canning line and then learning on our pilot system and then gradually learned the seven barrel and yeah, now I'm the head brewer. Despite all that experience, sometimes Snowden, as a female, still is not taken at face value. You have to put up with some sexist stuff, but I don't really pay a lot of attention to that. But she notices a difference at beer industry events 
outside St. Louis. I will be there with a man and people come up and just assume that he knows about the beer more than I do. You know, that's not people being malicious. I think that's just what their mind says is like, this is what craft beer looks like. Snowden says the Pink Boots Society has been key to helping her succeed in a business that needs more diversity. The nonprofit supports women and non-binary people working in beer and other fermentation businesses. Snowden prefers not to focus on the challenges of being a female head brewer and concentrate instead on the task of perfecting the next great brew, even though sometimes all that work just doesn't pay off. I tried to homebrew a kale and cucumber beer, and it was awful. <laughs> so that one might not have worked out, but Snowden and Abby Spencer back at Third Wheel in St. Peter's keep trying for more successful suds, even as the industry they enjoy tries to catch up to the times. I'm Wayne Pratt, St. Louis Public Radio. Illinois Lieutenant Governor Juliana Stratton made a recent stop in Bloomington Normal, the first of her series of what are called We Chats. These are casual conversations about what Illinois women need to achieve financial freedom. It gathered 25 women of color who own small businesses in the region. The lieutenant governor spoke with reporter Lauren Warnicke and says some of what she heard surprised her. I didn't realize that I would hear from a number of the women that they get started and then they get to a particular point and then they're not sure where to go next. They're not sure where to get resources about how to grow their business, how to expand their business, and that they often feel stifled at some point. I think there might be uh, a level of uh, a, some sort of assumption that um, women business owners have some level of mentorship, whether it's from chambers or of commerce or through other entities, but they were very sort of just all nodding their heads as one woman in particular said, it is lonely here. Is it like a lack of resources or is it a lack of awareness of existing resources or maybe a combination of the two? It's just remarkable how I hear time and time again, those weren't the lessons that I learned growing up. I did not learn the lessons about how to start a business, how to invest my money, how to plan for the future, how to you know, just so many things that are sort of basic. And I've heard some women say, but my brothers learned it or the boy cousins in my family learned it. And they're just, you know, historically and generationally still just is not the same level of conversation that's happening at our kitchen tables and in other spaces in our home and in our schools and on our campuses about women and what we should be thinking about um, in terms of money and our financial futures and being economically empowered. So I think that there's one part that's that. And then I do think that we can do more to make sure that resources uh, that women are aware of the resources that exist. Whether it's intentional or not, just by virtue of being there, you know, those 25 women in Bloomington Normal now have 24 other resources that they may not have had before. I saw the women in the room maybe having businesses in the same exact towns, like I know some were from Peoria and other places in central Illinois, and there was such a camaraderie that quickly because they could relate to each other. When someone said, this is what I'm experiencing, and you saw the other heads nodding, and then afterwards they're exchanging business cards and saying how affirming it was, that lets me know that 
these spaces are needed. Do you ever feel isolated? Is it somehow beneficial to you to be part of this kind of communal experience with women across all different sectors and and areas of leadership? Yeah, I love that question. And I'm not sure I've ever been asked that question about the impact that it has on me to be in these rooms. There's a part of this work where it was really important to make sure that women's voices led the way. And, um, you know, I think about how many times women are silenced, women are ignored, their voices are ignored. Or um, I, I can't speak for you, but I've been in, <laughs> in meetings mm -hmm. throughout my career where I have a good idea and I share the idea. And it's, you know, huh, whatever, not much reaction, but then a man gives the exact same idea and it's celebrated. Those are pretty common experiences that we can think about for women. And so for me, what it is, is it is an opportunity to be in community uh, with other women who are thinking about, you know, what the governor and I have set forth, and that is to make Illinois the best state in the nation for women and girls. And I chair the Illinois Council on Women and Girls that continues to work on this area. So it's very affirming for me to be in this space and hear women. You can almost see the empowerment come, not because of what we're gonna do as this initiative comes to a close, but we see the empowerment happening because they are given a space where it is safe to say what they need and to feel supported by others in the room. And so it's impossible that I would not also be inspired by that. What do you perceive as being maybe some outcomes? So there's so many things that we have already done and we're uplifting those things for the women of our state to make sure that they know, hey, we are working on your behalf. So that's one thing that we want to do. Secondly, as I mentioned, we want them to know how to access the resources that will help them do what they need to do. So it's wonderful that we offer through the Department of Public Health free mammograms to those who qualify. Do women know that that's the case? And usually when I go into a room and mention that, they're sort of like, I never knew that. So we have to make sure that we take what already exists, whether it's in the state or within our community-based organizations and bring it together, but a place where women are like, that is for me. Illinois Lieutenant Governor Juliana Stratton. She started a series of WeChat conversations with women to help them achieve financial freedom, including ways to help women business owners. Maureen McKinney brings us another installment of our series, Unsheltered. She tells us about how one Springfield shelter recently expanded its offerings to help women there learn to feel safe in their bodies. With a few strikes against a crystal singing bowl, Ashley Kristolovich begins a Sunday evening yoga and meditation class. The students are a group of women staying at the Helping Hands of Springfield Shelter. The classes have run since September. On this day, the women are doing yoga nidra, yoga sleep. Remember, your only job in the whole wide world right now is just listening and noticing how it feels. Laura Davis, 
the shelter's executive director, had taken trauma-informed meditation from yoga instructor Kristolovich. She'd seen the benefits and wanted to offer it to female clients who represent a minority of the unsheltered there. That's not unusual. Just 37% of Illinois' documented homeless population are women. She said the vast majority have survived some sort of interpersonal trauma. We don't see as many chronically homeless women because women are typically more resourceful about finding places to go. Unfortunately, sometimes those places to go aren't safe for them. So they end up in domestic violence situations or um, trafficked or whatever. Bridget Harden, one of those survivors, is a 52-year-old former Floridian who made her way to the Helping Hand shelter when she was thrown out of a friend's apartment in August. I've been kidnapped. I've had my head slammed on concrete. I've been raped. I have had so many things done to me. But they were her meditation class. She has helped me to be relieved from all of that. So try to become aware of the weight of your body. Your head, your arms, your seat, your legs. See if you can imagine all the bones in your body getting a little heavier. Just like heavy bones sinking. It is really just me taking them through, well, essentially a meditation. Rest through things like breathing, body awareness, visualization, very simple, for the most part, accessible practices. It's really hard for the body not to rest somewhere in there. Bridget Harden struggles with her mental health, part of why she finds the yoga so useful. It just relieves me. It takes me away. It relaxes my mind, my body. I have a moment to just forget about my stress, my depression, my anxiety, my bipolar, just everything. Jenny Lee, a licensed clinical social worker in California, said she did a study for a graduate school on trauma and homeless women. We know that people who are unstably housed struggle with anxiety, depression. Our study, just across the board, all the participants struggled with isolation, loneliness. Many struggled with depression. Many struggled with anxiety. PTSD as well from sexual trauma. Yeah, mindfulness through yoga meditation has been found to be super effective for people who struggle with those mental health symptoms. And yoga is one path toward peace of mind. Jill Custer is a social worker at SIU Medicine Survivor Recovery Center where the clients are victims of violence or those who've lost a loved one to it. The center offers yoga and meditation as therapy. She explains how yoga works to soothe. The body is activated into fight or flight mode. And to practice not during the activation but to practice at other times ways in which we can slow our breathing, relax our muscles, gain awareness of our body, and be in the moment instead of in our head can help everybody to better deal with the stresses of the day or more extreme trauma. That's exactly what Laura Davis, the shelter director, thought. I can't take away being homeless, right? I, like, I can't take away that experience from them, but we could provide them with a space where they could learn the tools to kind of help them be safe in their own bodies. Kristolovich says 
This taking of agency is her main goal for these women with whom she can identify. Kind of move towards our interest. Um, mine is probably very personal. I mean, I've survived a, a lot of familial trauma, a lot of domestic violence, um, incarceration, addiction, the list goes on and on. That includes temporary homelessness, she says. I have a place in my heart and there's also a lot of it that I can relate to. Um, so it's easier for me to see the, the person in front of me when I do this work. Yoga for Homeless Women is not completely unique, says the National Health Care for the Homeless Council. At first, at Helping Hands, women were hesitant about doing poses and unimpressed with meditation. It was the promise of relaxation that got their interest. Since then, Davis says, they tend to get along better. I'm Maureen McKinney. A legislative proposal would prevent local towns from restricting people from renting if they've come into contact with law enforcement. The Democratic Representative LaShawn Ford sponsored the Community Safety Through Stable Homes Act. He says a municipality should not have the right to dictate renter rules to landlords. We're saying there should be no blanket law. Landlords should have the discretion to do background checks and check for the um, the best person for renting their apartments to. Ford also says he sees this bill as a way to reduce the risk of discrimination toward black and brown communities and victims of domestic violence. More ahead on statewide, the effort to keep a private school scholarship program continues. We're back on statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. A state of Illinois scholarship that sent thousands of students to private schools over the last five years is coming to an end this June. It's left the families that relied on it worried about paying higher tuition costs come this fall, and people divided over taxpayer support for private schools. Anna Savchinka visited St. Francis of Rome, a Catholic school in Chicago's western suburbs that has been deeply affected by the cuts. Jasmine De La Mora's two daughters used to go to public schools. But I did not like it. She didn't like the large class sizes or the environment there. So I decided to bring them to St. Francis of Rome. They both went on to attend Catholic high schools, and now De La Mora's eldest, the Eileen, is a freshman at Loyola University, Chicago. I mean, she loves it, and she says that it's thanks to her education that she received at St. Francis of Rome. De La Mora says she wouldn't have been able to afford her daughter's tuition without the help of investing kids. It's a scholarship program that gave students up to $13,000 in tuition aid. The money came from Illinois residents who donated to scholarship funds and got a 75% tax credit in return. Over the last five years, the programs cut De La Mora's tuition bills by thousands. And this year, it is also helping her shoulder her son's tuition, who's a second grader at St. Francis. Which is why the news of lawmakers not renewing the program last November felt like a rug was being pulled from underneath her. I have a stable job and I'm going to be affected financially because the cost of um, schools, like other Catholic schools, are like very elevated. So um, I still don't know what I'm going to do. Then, January brought more bad news. St. Francis would close come summer. People, they, they literally gasped um, because this was just not what anyone expected. That's Philip Jackson, the school principal. He, too, was stunned by the news. 
but there were red flags long before the Invest in Kids program ended. Enrollment at St. Francis has been declining, and for decades, low-enrollment Catholic schools have been closing. The Catholic school system has pinned the school's closure on the end of the scholarship program, which some say is a PR stunt. Jackson acknowledges that St. Francis had a several hundred thousand dollar budget deficit for years. Still, he insists the loss of funding from investing kids delivered the final blow. It is one piece, but it's the piece that shoved, shoved us off the cliff. Now, he says, it's leaving working class parents and parents of color scrambling. But critics aren't as sympathetic. The, the program Investing Kids was supposed to sunset, so they should have been preparing. Al Lorenz is the president of the Illinois Education Association. He points out the legislation creating Investing Kids had an expiration date. And if you ask him, he will tell you the $75 million program should never have existed. Not while the majority of public schools in Illinois remain underfunded. Until you bring the public schools up to, you know, an adequate level of funding, I think it's unconscionable to divert money away. But Delamora doesn't see it that way. She's a social worker who spends her days helping others solve their problems. But she can't find a way to get her son the education she thinks he really needs without the extra help of a scholarship. That's why it's kind of disappointing because I help other people and I see how people live in poverty. And now that I need the help, I feel like my hands are tied, like I can't help myself. The help she needs may still come from Springfield, where a handful of lawmakers will push to revive the program this spring. The new bill could extend the tax credit scholarships for five more years, though with some concessions to critics. On the Savchenka, there will be easy news. Students who don't read well by the third grade are more likely to drop out or take longer to graduate. That's according to the education-focused Annie E. Casey Foundation. And there are a lot of kids struggling in Illinois. It's why parents and teachers pushed the state to create a new literacy plan that says schools should spend more time teaching letter sounds or phonics over other reading methods. Emily Hayes has more. Grade. Add bus to the beginning. Grade. Ride. Ride. Add book to the beginning. Ride. You can tell by her enthusiasm that teacher Kelly Alikan used to be a cheerleader. Today, she's teaching second graders, including Calvin Cohen at Mead Park Elementary in Danville, how to sound out words. <laughs> the super Why? swatter swatter, yep. Starts why started, started swatting. And usually each week we just have a new sound of the week to work on. So we practice it and then Fridays we test on it. This is called phonics and she's doing what research says is the best way to teach young children how to read. Reading is a is a newer advent in human history. That's Erica Tiemann. She's the director of standards and instruction for the Illinois State Board of Education. She says most kids need explicit instruction, including what sounds letters make or phonics. And so our brain is not naturally hardwired to know how to read. In 2001, Congress commissioned a study that found systematically teaching kids to sound out words works better than using the whole language strategy. That's where students focus more on guessing words based on story context. But whole language theory has been very influential, and Tanea York says not enough kids are learning phonics. She's a former principal and a literacy consultant. 
you can't have classrooms where students um, doing a lot of independent reading in time but haven't really learned how to read. In fact, 38 percent of Illinois students didn't have basic reading skills by the fourth grade in 2022, according to the National Assessment of Educational Progress. That's just above the national average. Black and Hispanic children are even less likely to be proficient than white children. And we have not been serving our Black children well. We need to interrogate why. And if they are not learning how to read, then we need to be looking at what structures we need to put in place. It's the reason York joined the Illinois Early Literacy Coalition. This group of parents and educators got a law passed last year. It required the State Board of Education to create a literacy plan, which was adopted on January 24th. Erica Tiemann helped write the plan. While phonics plays a key role, it isn't the only thing in it. It is a foundational skill. It's not the entire focus of the plan, but it's definitely an important piece of literacy, evidence-based literacy instruction. Mead Park principal Tanner D. Lawyer wishes he learned more about phonics when he was first training to become a middle school teacher. I also wish I had more of a primary mindset teaching fifth grade because I think it would have made me a better teacher. But the new plan is just a guide for school districts. They don't have to do anything different under the law, and that's a concern for York. It's like we're inviting people to try to do the right thing. <laughs> like, that's kind of how it's written. It, that makes me say it may not have the impact that we would want it to really have. Tiemann says mandating changes would be difficult because so many administrators and teachers would have to learn so much in a short period of time. And she says mandates are not always effective. Generally, if you can get people to critically reflect on their practices and really identify, you know, we may need to consider changes to this and get them to arrive at those conclusions on their own, the adoption of that work that needs to be done and the ownership of that work is going to be on them. In between classes, Mead Park Principal Tanner DeLoyer says phonics has already been a focus in Danville Public Schools since the district adopted a new reading curriculum a few years ago, so very little will change. Um, and really just getting every staff member trained with that and being on the same page so we have a common language across the board. Um, and students, you know, I, even though mobility is high um, across the district and in Mead Park, um, students will have the same instruction throughout. Despite high poverty rates, the school is doing well, according to the state report card. Black students improved faster in reading last year than their peers at almost any other school in East Central Illinois. The state has to prepare training courses for teachers and administrators on the lessons in the literacy plan by January 2025. I'm Emily Hayes. Some northern Illinois school districts are seeing an increase in migrant students over the past few years, and one of them is U46 in Elgin, the state's second largest school district. Peter Medlin reports on how that district is trying to help newcomer students. A small group of students are practicing how to order food in English. This is Larson Middle School's English Club. They meet a few times a week to sharpen their language skills and make new friends. Some even come to keep their Spanish strong after spending all day in English classes. Andrea Carrera Valdez is a seventh grade English as a second language or ESL teacher. She's leading them through listening tests after they watch scenes from Beauty and the Beast with subtitles. We play clips mainly in English so they can listen to English too because in their houses they're just talking in Spanish so they don't get used to listening to English and the latte for me. What do you think is the answer? Which one? Emma, 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 Emma. 
Carrera Valdez has been seeing more newcomer students over the past few years. That's true for the district as a whole, too. Just this fall, U46 added nearly 700 newcomer students, some of whom come from families seeking asylum in the U.S. They're from countries like Mexico, Venezuela, Colombia, and Guatemala. They also get students from places like India and Ukraine, too. Last year, they had 70 new Ukrainian students. When newcomer students arrive, their first stop is the Family Welcome Center. Brenda Escobedo is the center's coordinator. It's where families can register their kids and where they conduct testing, but families often come to the district with needs that extend beyond what the district can provide, whether it be housing, immigration, or work. Every new family, they're receiving like a folder with all the resources available in the community because, you know, so they can see it, review everything that applies to them. And sometimes, you know, they're, they're kind of shy and they don't want to share everything that they need. So we prepare like a packet for them so with all the information in algae. Throughout the school year, the district has been hosting newcomer parent support group events where parents can ask questions about where they can find their kids' grades, how to connect with school counselors, and receive district communication. They also had food and free winter coats at the last one. At the school level, staff have also formed newcomer groups this year. Marisol Reina is an English language learner teacher at Larson Middle School. The groups are comprised of the teachers and staff who work with them the most and try to foster a sense of belonging in the building. It helps that 75% of Larson students are Hispanic too. Last year at the end of the year we had many newcomers come you know the last two months of school so then my brain just started spinning like we need to do something we can't just throw them in and say good luck because they come with so much. She says they usually only have a few days notice that a newcomer's arriving and because they do come with so much she says mental health support for newcomer students is crucial. Some of them have had to leave family and friends behind. Ziamara Gill is a resident administrator, basically an administrator in training at U46. She says it's always a challenge to have enough mental health support. Those positions are difficult for many schools to staff, especially when you need a Spanish-speaking school counselor or school social worker. Having the personnel, the staff available all the time, that could be a struggle. That's definitely, I think, an area that I would say we could use a little bit more, maybe. Gil says they've been doing small group counseling to try to provide as much support to the students as possible. She's seen some students, understandably, get emotional reflecting on their journey. They also encourage older newcomers to become leaders to help younger kids. And she says they also come across challenges you might not consider. We have students who have interrupted education and they don't have any documents. They don't have any way to prove anything. So there's it's a limbo that they can. It's easier for younger students. They can usually just place them with kids in their age group. But they've had 17 year old high school students in freshman level classes due to a lack of credits. Countries like Venezuela are also on a different school calendar. They finished the school year in November. So so when they arrive, it can be hard to know where to place them. And staff also want newcomers to have the opportunity to be normal kids, to make friends, go on field trips, and play sports. Gill remembers a high school student who came last year and just wanted to play volleyball. He asked for a volleyball t-shirt and when the games were going to be. But they weren't sure if his international credits would count, but they advocated with the IHSA and got him the chance to play. He made it up to the varsity teams when he got in. So he was, his face, his demeanor, everything, he was just so happy. He went from wanting just a volleyball t-shirt to being on the varsity team. At the end of the day, Raina says to remember that these are just kids, many of whom have been through a lot. And it's important to help them start to address that and find their place in their new school, new community, and new country so they can start to thrive. I'm Peter Mudlin. Ford Heights in Chicago's south suburbs has not had a library in 30 years, but residents are still taxed for library services. Where that money goes is anyone's guess. 
Adore Nemagode set out to find some answers, and she discovered the village had collected more than $100,000 over the past decade, yet no one will answer for it. The rusted doors to the Ford Heights Community Center lead to a temporary library space some volunteers cobbled together. The small room contains three computers, a rug, and some used bookshelves that hold about 100 book donations. Everything from colorful children's novels to a navy blue Britannica encyclopedia set. Liddell Jones is president of the Volunteer Ford Heights Library Board. This is all we have right now in the community. Nothing else, nobody can go nowhere else, so this is what we get right here. After my interview with Jones, I did some digging to get a handle on the Ford Heights finances. And I learned something shocking. Taxpayers are actually contributing roughly $20,000 a year to the library. That led me to dig some more. It turns out that although there is not a public library right now, and there hasn't been one for years, the residents of Ford Heights are and have been paying for one. Records WBEZ requested show the Ford Heights Public Library District has requested more than $800,000 in levies over the last decade. And over that time, the Cook County Treasurer has distributed more than $121,000 to the Fort Heights Public Library District. So why in the world is a volunteer library needed, I wondered. I reached out to several employees at Fort Heights, but no one returned my phone calls. It's not clear where the money collected for the library is going, but it is clear that it's not going back into a real library. That adversely affects young people like 13-year-old Jessica Baden. She spends time at the new volunteer library after school while knowing that she doesn't have the same library access the majority of kids in other cities do. I don't think we can get to either near cities. We can't even get uh, like our own like, you know, library cards because of it, like the debt the city has to those other cities. And it's really sad. So, you know, I hope this library can grow to its own. She's right. The district closed its library roughly 30 years ago after being unable to keep it up to code. So Ford Heights partnered with the neighboring Glenwood Linwood Public Library to begin offering services in 2004. But Ford Heights fell behind on tens of thousands of dollars in payments. The Ford Heights Village Administrator also won't return my calls. Glenwood Linwood Director Brian Vaught says the lack of payments forced the program to end just five years after launch. He says his library system has tried to help Ford Heights in other ways, but nothing stuck. Like when a few years ago, the library donated a bookmobile to Ford Heights but it just sat abandoned on Route 30 for years. The old bookmobile that's sitting, falling apart, dying, <laughs> they had worked it out that they could basically plug in the old book, bookmobile to an outlet on a pole. The bookmobile was towed last fall. Then Vaught says in July, his library started offering digital library cards so Fort Heights residents can access online materials. He plans to continue this program indefinitely and wants to keep trying to find ways to give Fort Heights residents access to books. But he can't. Since Fort Heights technically has a library district of its own, its residents cannot get full access cards at other libraries. So until then, residents will have to use the makeshift library in the community center that's about the size of a dining room. Adora Namagode with that report. There's more to come on Statewide. Stay right here. This is Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. Still on the way, did you celebrate Fat Tuesday with a sweet treat? Well, we will hear all about Simla, the decadent pastry of choice in Sweden. That's on the way.
NPR has a continuing series called Bill of the Month, which is a crowdsourced investigation in partnership with Kaiser Health News. It dissects and explains medical bills. A recent segment focused on a case out of Illinois, and we bring you that today. Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal is senior contributing editor with our partner, KFF Health News. Welcome back, doctor. Oh, another year, more stories. Another year, more bills. So tell us, who are we meeting this month? This month, we're speaking to Chantal Pinoso. She lives outside Chicago. She and her husband got routine colonoscopies last year to screen for colon cancer. The law says preventive care services like this are supposed to be fully covered without any cost to the patient. But Chantal and her husband ended up with identical his and her bills for some really downright bizarre charges. Okay, I want to hear more about that. Reporter Zach Dyer takes it from here. Chantal Pinozzo got quite a birthday present from her primary care doctor when she turned 45 last year. And he was like, happy birthday, congratulations. You're that age, so here's your referral. For a colonoscopy. Screenings like this are supposed to help catch colon cancer or other gut issues that can come with getting older. Chantal says, in a weird way, she was looking forward to it. Her husband had gotten his colonoscopy earlier that year, too. It was supposedly free, and we don't get a lot of free things for our our premiums, so we thought, yep, for sure. Everything went fine, but about a month later, Chantal got a bill from the doctor's office. $250. No, this can't be happening. Not again. Chantal couldn't believe it. They had just spent months contesting her husband's $250 bill, which had come from the same doctor. And now she was about to start all over again. I thought, what is going on? Why am I getting billed for things that are supposed to be free? And Chantal couldn't even figure out what she was supposed to pay for. So on the bill itself, it was code A4550. She called her insurer. She says the agent on the phone told her it was a code for surgical trays. So then I called the billing department of the provider, and she actually told me something different. Chantal says they told her, yes, the code was technically for surgical supplies, but that's not how they were using it. Instead, Chantal says they were using this code as a stand-in for something they called a use cost for the doctor's office. No one knew code A4550, and no one can decode it. So it just made me think all the more, yes, I'm going to appeal this because my provider and my insurer can't even agree what this charge is for. So Chantal got to work. She studied the law, reviewed the insurance benefit handbook, called the state insurance authority, drafted and redrafted appeal letters. It took months. Finally, her appeals worked. The insurer said she and her husband weren't expected to pay anything. I did almost quit, you know. But I just thought, this isn't about 250. This isn't about 250 times two. These little bills matter. And I think those of us who can should try to do it for the sake of everyone else. But Chantal says she couldn't even savor the victory. In this case, the win was not having to pay a bill she shouldn't have had to pay in the first place. That was Zach Dyer with our partner, KFF Health News Reporting. And we're back now with Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal. Dr. Rosenthal, I mean, this was supposed to be a preventative service. So how did Chantal end up with a bill? You know, I love patients like Chantal. Under the Affordable Care Act, health insurance companies are responsible to make sure preventive care for things like a mammogram or a colonoscopy are available at no cost to the patient. What the law doesn't specify is how doctors' offices bill for that care or what billing codes they use. Medical providers have 
pretty broad leeway, and sometimes odd charges can show up on your bill for care you'd expect to be fully covered. I mean, as we heard, Chantal was really diligent. She filed appeal after appeal, tracked this all down. But it raises the question, is anyone out there actually policing this kind of medical billing behavior? Well, one expert we spoke to said insurance companies should crack down on doctors' offices and other health providers they work with. But, you know, to them, a funky charge of $250 here and there is peanuts, not worth the manpower and trouble to contest it. Chantal's insurer, Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Illinois, declined to comment on the case. Right. And the law we've been talking about, the Affordable Care Act, it was designed to encourage people to seek out care that keeps them healthy. So square this all for us. Medical prices are a big worry for many Americans. Chantal's case shows a loophole in the Affordable Care Act. Certain preventive care should be free to patients, but it leaves a lot of wiggle room on how it's billed. And providers can try to bill for add-ons. Right. So what can patients do? Well, unfortunately, patients like Chantal have to be the police themselves. Wait to get the explanation of benefits from your insurer before you pay the bill. If you see something suspicious, especially for a procedure you thought should be free, speak up and contest the charge. I mean, free means free for preventive care. And is there anything else that we should note about Chantal's bill specifically? The doctor's office, the Illinois Gastroenterology Group, declined to comment. A staffer there referred us to the GI Alliance, which manages the practice. And here's the punchline. The GI Alliance is a private equity-backed network with 800 gastroenterologists working in 15 states. They didn't respond to our request for comment. That's Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal, senior contributing editor with our partner, KFF Health News. Dr. Rosenthal, thank you. Thanks for having me. If you have a confusing health bill, let them know at kffhealthnews.org. Wind and solar projects are popping up in more places across the Midwest, but so is opposition. Several counties, townships, and towns, including in Illinois, have restricted the construction of big wind turbines and solar panels. But as Jim Meadows reports, Illinois and Michigan recently passed laws making it hard for local governments to say no to green projects. The farmland out where Jerry Edwards lives in northern Piatt County, Illinois, is flat enough that he can point a mile to the north where a wind farm will soon be installed. There will be a tower the size of the gateway arch back this way in where the cover crop is. And then in the field just east of it, I mean, we can walk out to the road and see, there will be a, a second. The Piah County Board voted down the project in March of last year. Then, seven months later, they approved it. Edwards, who was the county board's vice chairman, voted no both times. He says other board members changed their no votes to yes because of a new Illinois law. It set statewide standards for wind and solar projects. In Piatt County, officials worried saying no to this wind farm could lead to a costly legal battle. In a nutshell, the governor, the speaker of the house, and the head of the senate basically had a gun held to their head saying, you are going to vote for this or else you subject the county to lawsuits that would break the county. Opponents of the wind farm say their eyesores create noise and light problems, as well as potential environmental issues once the turbines wear out. 
But the state of Illinois needs more wind farms and solar farms to meet its goal of 100% clean energy by 2050. That's according to the Northern Illinois University law professor Sarah Fox, whose specialty is environmental law and land use. If you have local governments around the state unwilling to commit to wind and solar and other things, then Illinois is not going to be able to get to those renewable energy goals that it has set. Wind and solar farms are built on sites leased by willing landowners, but local opposition has been growing year by year, according to the Sabin Center for Climate Change Law at Columbia University in New York. It counted nearly 300 projects that have faced serious opposition across the U.S. as of last year and more than 220 local governments and six states that either restrict or ban them outright. Matthew Isensen authored the center's report last year. I think this is largely due to the fact that developers are proposing projects in new areas and the local restrictions are often a reaction to, you know, a specific project proposal. In Michigan, voters in several townships in Montcalm County not only rejected projects, but recalled township officials who supported them. Then, last November, the governor signed Michigan's Clean Energy Future Package into law. It includes limits on townships' ability to say no to wind and solar projects. Supporters say that's a good move for the state's environment and economy. But there's an effort in Michigan to overturn those limits through a state referendum. Retired school teacher Norm Stevens is gathering signatures. The state's plans of 100% renewable energy and takeover of local control of that zoning is a classic case of government overreach, and they aren't realistic, and nor are they achievable. Despite pushback, the number of U.S. wind and solar facilities has grown as costs have fallen. Jeff Danielson is with the Clean Grid Alliance, which advocates for renewable energy in the Midwest. He says acceptance of green projects will come in time. But it will come with some discussion, some conflict, and a reconciling of of folks' preferences along the way. We should embrace that because we get to do it in a democratic setting, and that, I think, should be everybody's goal. But in rural areas of Illinois and Michigan, some residents resent that state law is overriding local authority over wind and solar farms. For Harvest Public Media, I'm Jim Meadows. This week we marked Fat Tuesday, a day of excess marked by feasting on decadent cakes and pastries. Some celebrate with king cakes and ponchki, but in Sweden the simla bun is the pastry of choice. Sienna Greaves with WBEZ visited the Swedish-American Museum in Chicago's Andersonville neighborhood to see how the sweet treats are made. I arrived to the museum about an hour before opening, following my nose through the dimly lit gallery. Along with the typical smells of an archive, wood, canvas, and the slightly sweet musk of old books, I'm greeted by the scent of warm cinnamon and cardamom. As I approach the small commercial kitchen at the rear of the museum, I hear the steady hum of a convection oven and the movement of a determined baker. Hi. You are off to the races this morning. It smells delightful in here. I just put in a whole batch. Karen Moan Abercrombie is the museum's full-time executive director and part-time baker. Every Friday, she arrives to the museum at 5 a.m. to make pastries from her native Sweden for the museum's pop-up cafe. Today, in addition to the cinnamon rolls and cookies that are always on the menu, Abercrombie is making semla buns. 
The indulgent treat that sweets enjoy on Shrove Tuesday showcases cardamom. The spice, which is native to South and Southwest Asia, is what give the buns their warm and spicy flavor. This is the kernels. You can also buy cardamom pods. This is also what we use when we make glug at winter time, mm -hmm. our spiced and hot beverage. Clean this up. Uh, I smell it. it. smells amazing. I know. We like things with a flavor in Sweden. So cardamom just adds, especially to a yeast dough, um, and as you're going to see on the buns, it just really changes of how the bun tastes. Abercrombie mixes the cardamom with sugar, flour, butter, milk, and a pinch of salt until a sticky but firm dough is formed. And then um, we roll it out into rolls that we then proof for about an hour, hour and a half. And when you do the proof, are you looking for these buns to double in size? They don't exactly double, but they do get larger. Okay. Yeah. And then after we've done that, we brush it with an egg wash, just so we get a nice brown coloring on the top. And then we bake it in the oven. The buns head to the oven to bake for 12 to 16 minutes at 400 degrees. Once they're baked and cooled, it's time to work on the almond filling. Abercrombie cuts the tops of the buns and sets them aside for later. Now I'm going to take the fork and I'm going to cut, take out the inside and create a hole. Some folks use almond paste for filling, but Abercrombie makes her own using almond flour, powdered sugar, some whipped cream, and a little bit of those insides that we scooped out earlier. Once the filling is added inside the shiny buns, they are piled high with fresh whipped cream. And those tops we cut off earlier have a very particular use. Some people are gonna pick it up, they will take the top, mm -hmm. and then will use that sort of as a spoon. Some are gonna try to do it sophisticated with knife and fork. Mm -hmm. But very few do that. Right. The finished buns are a work of art. Neighbor Jerry Stemnock says it's sweet treats like these that bring him to the pop-up cafe at the museum. His technique for eating them? I pull off the top and eat that, and then I just sort of chomp in from the sides until it's all gone. Demolishing semla is not only a delicious task, but one that can create community. If you live in Andersonville, you have to become Swedish by adoption and I have been happy to do that. And I can confirm, the subtly sweet cream and spice of the semla is a decadent mouthful of Swedish culture, and I will return to the Swedish American Museum to taste more. Sienna Greaves, WBEZ News. We're out of time for Statewide. Thanks for being with us. And join us next week. We'll have more reports and conversations from in and around Illinois. You can find us where you get your podcasts through the NPR app and at nprillinois.org. I'm Sean Crawford, and Statewide is a production of NPR Illinois with help from other Illinois public radio stations. Bye -bye.